As we come to the scripture, let me ask that you would bow with me to pray. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and it is for us, meant by you to be for us, a means of grace. So I pray that you would in fact pour out your grace upon us. We know that we're not worthy of all the good things that you have done for us and all that you've promised, but we receive them as gifts of grace. And we also pray that this means of grace would be one that would strengthen us, that would help us, that would enable us, that would empower us to live in such a way that is pleasing to you. So be with us now. Hold our attention to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Colossians in chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, I want to um, read and again, read again. Uh, this uh, passage, uh, verses 1 through 17. So here we go, Colossians in chapter 3, verse 1. Hear the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'd like, if God will help me, to take up this verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful now um, we're sort of barreling our way through here this particular chapter will be done I think uh, next Sunday or the week after but probably next Sunday with these 17 verses and move on and just to take a look at what's coming we've often looked at what's been, but look at what's coming here. You know, Paul is, is, is applying uh, this, and we see beginning today on through kind of the rest of this chapter, that we're to be people whose hearts are ruled by the peace of Christ. We're to be people whose communication is informed by the word of Christ, you see. And thus, since our hearts are ruled, governed by the peace of Christ, our communication is formed by the 
informed by the word of Christ, that we're to do everything um, in the name and for the sake of or in the name of our Lord Jesus. Again, no big surprise there. And then he goes on to apply it. And he goes on to apply this whole passage in, in, in a couple of particular kinds of relationships. In relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children. And also in relationship between slaves and masters. And so we'll take those up. Husbands and wives, parents and children seem to make sense. Slaves and masters, we wonder about that. And we'll just wonder about that and we'll get to that whenever, when we get to that. But, but that's where we're headed. And so, so we're to be people uh, whose relationships with each other to be governed by, ruled by the peace of Christ, be people whose conversation, whose communication with each other in all kinds of ways uh, is to be informed by the word of Christ. We're to do everything in the name of Christ and that's going to apply particularly to us as the church and specifically then in relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, whatever that means in our culture, however we apply that. So that's where we're headed. But today I want to take up this verse 15. Uh, Paul writes, So uh, let the word of, I'm sorry, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed we were called in one body. We were called to peace and thus we're to have the peace of Christ rule in us, rule in our hearts. Four questions pop up. Number one, what's the peace of Christ? Number two, in what sense does it rule and govern us? Number three, what does it really mean then in the context of our own lives? Number four is how is being thankful part of all of that? I might not get to that piece, but at least I'll get to the first three. So what's it mean, this peace of Christ? How is it to rule in us? What's that mean particularly in us and for us? And, 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 And how is being thankful a part of this whole letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Peace. It's a very significant biblical word. Old Testament, you may know the word for peace, shalom. It's a, it's a sense of rest, a sense of blessedness, uh, lack of worry, free from anxiety. In a military sense, it means your enemies are subdued. There's, there's peace, there's no hostility. Uh, in a social sense, it means there's harmony among people. In a, in a personal sense, it means there's no anxiety, there's no worry. Um, and so one has this sense of safety, one has this sense of no anxiety, safety from everything without from within, there's this sense of, of, yes, I have enough. I have material provision. I have health. Therefore, I can be at rest. Therefore, I am safe. Therefore, I am at peace. There's a sense of blessedness, a sense of wholeness. Really, in a biblical sense, a sense of salvation. And, and what brings all this about, as we understand the biblical context, is a sense of this peace that is with God and that comes from Him. Um, we know... As we go back to the origins of the human story, the origins of human history, we realize that that God created and there was peace. It was good. There was harmony with him. There was peace with him. Peace among each other as Adam and Eve first lived. But then a time came when that peace was broken. That peace was broken with God and with each other because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Peace was broken with God. There was rebellion against him. So from his perspective, there was enmity or hostility. Because of his justice, we became then under his wrath, under his condemnation, because we had offended him. We had sinned against him. And there was also a break in peace with each other. We can see that most especially and readily as we listen to Adam 
blamed both Eve and God when he said, uh, it is because of this woman you gave me. And so all of a sudden we see there's, there's enmity, there's hostility between Adam and Eve. He's blaming her. You see enmity between Adam and God. There's a lack of peace there. There was a hiding, a, a trying to get away from God. So we see the peace with God being broken. We see the peace with one another being broken. God cursed that relationship in a very real, significant way because of the sin that evolved and said it's not going to be harmonious the way it really should be. You'll try to rule over her, Adam. Eve, you'll try to take his position. The ground was cursed, so, so there, was, there was material anxiety that would happen. Uh, it, would, the, it would not be the plenty that was in the garden. Now he would have to work, Adam, by the very sweat of his brow, and there would be all kinds of contingencies, all kinds of things to think about in order to make a living uh, and we know those both directly from nature and directly even these days from economic situations and so forth. There isn't peace financially, materially. There's anxiety, there's worry, there's wonder. Will we have enough? In fact, there's even worry and wonder even when we appear to have more than enough at any one point in time. Still, we are anxious about material things. There's not peace there. There's not peace physically because we know we'll die and, and, and we never come to grips with that that's always in our thinking that's always in the background we will die and we experience the effects of that ultimate death and all kinds of physical maladies and illness and disabilities and so forth and so there's, there's a lack of rest a lack of peace even in that context because of life we know there's hostility among people politically we see it in the context of nations against nations and we know it even relationally. You know, in the context of community, we know it in the context of even church, we know in the context of family that there's strife and there's division and there's conflict. We, we know that, we see that. And it arises from sin. It arises because of the selfishness and the pride that is in us. And thus there is no peace. But God is the God of peace. In fact, Gideon, the great Old Testament saint, said, referred to God and he said, the Lord is peace. And, and we see that very fact because the Lord promises peace. He promises peace in the context of a, of a wonderful blessing that he, he gives to his people. You, you know that. Uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 22 God says to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So you get this sense the God of peace is saying, For my people I desire for them to have peace. Peace with me, peace with each other, peace on the face of the earth. And the text ends by saying this, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this peace that God will bring, peace that will come from him. In Isaiah, in chapter 9, uh, we read this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders as a rule, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David 
and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth uh, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. He is, in fact, the prince of peace. And of his, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. How will this peace come? Well, the prophet lays it out in more detail in chapter 53. In verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed For our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. There is this peace that he will bring. He will take our iniquities upon himself. And prophet Ezekiel speaks of this peace that will come and he says this to the people he says and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you I'll remove the heart of stone and I will uh, from you and give you a heart of flesh I'll put my spirit within you cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules this he says will be for you a covenant of peace Chapter 37, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people, this covenant of peace. And you remember that this covenant of peace was announced. There was a day that angels began, began to, sang, to sing Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. So we, we, we get this sense of it, of it coming. Then we hear this one Jesus announcing this peace, giving this peace to those uh, who were his own disciples. Uh, he says to them, my peace I give to you. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He gives to his very own disciples uh, peace. We see it clearly as Jesus meets with his disciples after his resurrection. He says these significant words to them. He says, peace be with you. And we know how this peace came about. This peace came about by way of the cross, by way of Jesus dying. He took the hostility of God. He took the wrath of God. He took our guilt upon himself uh, so that he might be crushed for our iniquity, so that we might have peace with God. Notice how the apostle puts it in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes by way of him. And then he says, through him, through Jesus, we've obtained also access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says, this peace is secure because we shall see 
the very glory of God. And then he goes on to say, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character produces hope. And the hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. He says, even in the midst of suffering, this peace is true because we have peace with God and it's secure. And so even in the midst of our suffering, God will make that good. And then he says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He said, listen, none of this depended upon us. It depended upon God. So this peace is secure. Reconciliation, peace with God. That, you see, opens up a whole world of rest for us. But what Paul's really getting at here in this passage in Colossians is not so much an inner peace that flows from the fact that we have peace with God and we know that God is for us, therefore who can be against us? We know that even when suffering comes, God is with us, thus we need not worry. We know that God will protect us, God will keep us safe, God will take us home, all of that. He's talking about peace among each other. And that, you see, is a work of Christ as well. We read of that in our responsive reading this morning this progression of verses to lay all this out the the verse from Ephesians in chapter 2 beginning with verse 13 through verse 18 speaks of the fact that Christ has made peace with God for us but also with each other because now you see we're members of the same family now we're members of the same household now we are joined together to be one temple in the Lord where his dwelling will be among us And he's the one who's made peace because his purpose in saving us isn't simply an individual thing. It isn't simply that we're reconciled to God. Oh, it's that. You can't get away from that. That's the the foundation of it. But once that occurs, you see, we're not only joined together with God, but we're joined together with each other. If we're going to be people who live out the image of God, if we're going to be people who reflect him, we can't do that alone. We have to do that together because God is social. God loves, and so we must have each other to love as well. That's why Jesus could say, a new commandment I give to you, to love one another as I've loved you. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. Well, of course, because when we love, then we're reflecting God. So we can't be independent. We can't be Lone Ranger Christians. God didn't save us just for us so that we get to heaven when we die or whatever. But he saved us so that as a community of his people, now we may show him by being united together and live that out all throughout eternity in perfection, of course, in glory. So he's made this peace. Thus, Paul could write in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read this already, for just as the body is one, has many members and all the members of the body, Though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves free. We're all made to drink one spirit all together. And therefore, Paul says, since God has joined you together, 
make every effort to maintain the unity of the body in this bond of peace. We're to make every effort. We're to be eager to make every effort. We're going to do all that we can to maintain this unity that comes to us because of being baptized by one spirit into one body. To, in this bond of peace. So he says, uh, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I mean, we, we need to do that. He says, strive for peace. Seek peace. Pursue peace. Uh, plan peace because he says the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking but it's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and that particular context from Romans 14 is, is Paul is speaking of what do you do when you disagree amongst yourselves as believers not about essential matters, not about things of theology that divide believers and unbelievers but as people who agree on all of that, believers in Christ what do you do when you disagree about these, these things that are, that are, that are, that are not essential, that are disputable. What do you do about that? How do you live together? What, what rules then in your life? He said, well, I want you to understand that the kingdom of God isn't a matter of those disputable things, eating and drinking and so forth, but it's a matter of righteousness, being right with God. It's a matter of peace with God and with each other. It's a matter of living together as God's people in joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy, and all of that by way of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he says, so if you understand this, if you're living in the kingdom, then pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Blessed, Jesus said, are peacemakers. For theirs, they shall be called sons of God. Why? Because when we're making peace, we're reflecting God is peace, you see. And that's the very wisdom of God. This is no small thing. Uh, Jesus put it like this as he was praying to his father before his crucifixion. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. He says, I have this community of people, this church, these ones who believe in me. Now, make them one. Make them love each other in such a way that they're united together. Cause them to be like-minded enough so that they're united together. Cause them to live in peace with one another so they're the world sees that they're united together because that'll be the evidence, that'll be the show. That's what the world is to be, is to be a group of people who live in harmony with one another. That's what it's going to be in glory. And the new earth is going to be a community of people who reflect God by loving him and loving each other. That's what it will be like. Now, of course, that the necessity there is that we're born again. The necessity there is that we're made new. Because you see, the hope for us to live this out is the very hope that, that Paul lays out in, these, in this chapter in Colossians. He tells us that, uh, we are to, that, that, that those who have faith in Jesus have put off the old self and put on the new self. And that new self is presently being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So, so that's the key, you see. 
The key is to be this new self, this one with a new heart, as Ezekiel says, this one to be born again, as Jesus says, this one is the new creation, as the apostle has written, this new self. And so he says, I've made you to be ones who can live at peace with each other. Now live that out. It's crucial, you see. In fact, so important is this living it out that the Bible speaks of the gospel, the good news, as the gospel of peace in Acts chapter 10. We have this meeting with a Jew and a Gentile, Peter and Cornelius. Now that was amazing that Peter would even be in his house. We, we have very little conception of, of, of what, that, what that would mean in that context. So at odds were these people that for Peter to go to the house of Cornelius required a vision from God and a word directly from God to get him there. Short of that, Peter would have never on his own thought to go to the household of Cornelius. He would have never done that. And here he finds himself. And when he shares the gospel with Cornelius and those who are there, they believe and they're joined together with God, reconciled to God. But not only that, at that moment in time, Peter gets it, they're reconciled, these Gentiles, to him. There's now no hostility between the two of them. Can't be. How can they both profess faith in Christ, faith in the same Father, being joined together by one spirit? How can he do that? And so Cornelius... I mean, Peter then says this. He speaks, verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, preaching good news, preaching the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. And so Peter gets it at that moment in time. They're joined together now to maintain that peace. How do we do that? Well, Paul has already laid it out for us. Because he says it's really this sense of walking worthy of Christ, walking fully pleasing to him. On the one hand, if we go back to verse 5 in Colossians chapter 3, he says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. See, each one of those destroys peace. To understand how much immorality destroys peace among people. You see it in marriages. You see it in the context of the church. That immorality disrupts harmony. It disrupts peace, causes distrust immorality covetousness desiring what other people have being discontented with what you have yourself disrupts peace among people you can't be united when you're coveting what they have and so Paul says put those to death put those aside put those away Put away immorality that will destroy your peace. God will tell you how it is that sexual intimacy is to take place. And when it's taking place in that way between husbands and wives, uh, monogamous, 
heterosexual relationships, then there's peace, you see, because sexual intimacy is confined to the right sphere, the right place. It's not getting out of hand. It's, it's not moving from one family to another family. It's, it's here, and there'll be peace. But if there's sexual immorality, there won't be peace, so put that to death. Covetousness, when you're desiring, envying, being jealous of the other, there can't be peace. So put that all aside. Put that all away. And then he says in verse 8, notice, put away, uh, put to death, and put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. He says, watch what you say. Watch what you say. Be careful with, with anger because that will disrupt peace. Uh, malicious thoughts and talk. Be careful because that will disrupt peace. Put that away. Uh, slander. Put that away. That will disrupt peace. Obscene talk. That is saying those things about one another and even to one another that should never be said. Obscene talk. He said, put that away. Put that away. Because that will disrupt peace because you see the way that peace rules in our hearts is by getting us to ask this question what is it that I'm about to think or do or say that will affect the peace that Christ died to achieve see in every circumstance in relationships with one another what we need to be thinking about is this What will what I'm about to think or do or say do to the peace that Christ died to achieve? And so, if we're thinking that, then if that's ruling us, then we'll put away sexual immorality, we'll put away covetousness, we'll put away envy, put away jealousy and all of that. We'll put away our anger, we'll put away wrath and slander and malice and obscene talk from our lips because none of that will pass the ruler, the umpire, the referee peace Christ died to achieve this peace is what we're about to say going to destroy that is what we're about to do going to destroy that is what we're thinking going to destroy that peace amongst one another and so he says then put on compassion and kindness of course Compassionate people, kind people, are peaceable people. People who are able to to look at the need and say, well, I'll help you. And in that help brings peace. Humble and meek, he says. Put on humility and meekness. Humble people know who they are in the presence of God. Humble people see their own achievements and are, are not so impressed. Because they realize that the only merits of value are the merits of Christ. Meek people look at their own rights and they're not so impressed to think that they deserve all of that. And so they're able to set all of that aside and and, and seek peace, real peace, to love each other. The apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 13 what, what love really is. And we read these sentimentally. We shouldn't. This is hard. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast, puts away covetousness. It isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. So we see all of that in humility and meekness. The apostle, of course, goes on in Colossians 3 and says, we're to put on patience. Patient people seek peace and bring peace and make peace. 
People who forbear with each other, seek peace, make peace. They're able to set aside their own interests. People who forgive, seek peace, make peace. But of course, this isn't just peace at any cost. This doesn't mean that we overlook injustice and, and we overlook sin. No, not at all. We confront, but we confront peaceably. We confront lovingly. We confront caringly. We confront with the, with the hope of not of putting ourselves above the other, not of being judgmental, not of, not of saying, oh, you are wrong and I'm right, but, but, but to restore and to bring back peace amongst us. Apostle in 1 Corinthians 13 speaks of love like this. He says, it's, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so we confront lovingly and kindly. But then he goes on to say this. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. No doubt he's, he's, he's laying this out in, 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 in a way of exaggerated speech to say, get it, understand that when you love, your heart's desire is to bear everything with that people, person, to believe everything about them. Not to be naive, but to, but to believe them. That's your first pass. Bear all things, believe, to endure all things with them. Charles Simeon, an old dead guy, uh, spoke of this kind of peace. And he says, we must be careful with what we think about one another so that we can bear all things, believe all things. And he had these rules, he called them for himself, as the peace of Christ ruling in his heart. And he said, first this. He says, what governs him is to hear as little as possible what is the prejudice of others? In other words, he says, I pay very little attention to what people say negatively about those I love. I just pay very little attention to it. I won't let my mind go there. I won't let my ear go there. And he says, then, second rule is to believe nothing of the kind until I'm absolutely forced to. When you love to live with a group of people who wouldn't believe the worst about you until they were absolutely forced to. Wouldn't it be great to be in that kind of fellowship? And then he says thirdly this. He says he has determined never to drink into the spirit of one who circulates an ill report. It's an old-fashioned way of saying, I'm not going not not to join with you in your spirit, in your attitude of criticism against the one I love. And then fourthly, he says, always to moderate as far as I can the unkindness which is expressed toward others. So when he hears an unkindness, he tries to moderate that. He says, okay, but what's the other side to this? How can we think the best of this person? And fifthly, he says, always to believe that if the other side were heard, a very different account would be given of the matter. That is, don't make up your mind until you've heard it all. C.S. Lewis wrote on this same passage of 1 Corinthians 13 about love bearing all things and enduring all things and believing all things. He writes this, he says, to love involves trusting the beloved beyond the evidence, even against much evidence. No man is our friend who believes in our good intentions only when they're proved. No man is our friend who will not be very slow to accept evidence against them. Such confidence between one man and another is in fact almost universally praised as a moral beauty, not blamed as a logical error. Now I understand. 
We mustn't be naive. We mustn't let one another get away with sin. But our tendency is often to find the sin and break the peace. Jesus said, remember, it's easy to see the log in somebody else's eye. It's very difficult to see the speck in your own. And so it's good to speak in these lofty kind of terms about living at peace with one another because the tendency isn't. The tendency is conflict. And so let's be a people of peace. And Paul was writing to the church in Rome about certain disputable matters, as he put it. And it's hard to come up with a list of disputable matters. People dispute about that. Uh, What's essential and what's not essential. Um, So leave that out of this. But as the rule, he says, as as you're with believers with one another and in love with each other to live in peace, it isn't that we can't speak of these matters. It isn't that we can't discuss them and even dispute over them in kind ways. But the issue at hand was food here in certain ways with idols and a context that doesn't make much sense to us. But Paul says this, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. So take out for the sake of food. Do not for the sake of whatever it is. Destroy the peace that Christ died to achieve. Let's be cautious about that. Because in so doing, we are the sons of God. We must always, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our lives, live at peace with one another. Always asking the question, what will What I'm about to think or do or say due to the peace that Christ died to achieve. We realize that the peace that we have with each other, the peace that we even have within us, all comes because of the peace that's been made between us and God. We consider that great peace as it came to at great cost to God. We realize that it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he was living out the very prophecy of Isaiah who spoke that our peace would be accomplished by this Messiah being crushed. And he took bread that was at the table and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, the scripture says that Jesus took the cup that was at that table. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant, that covenant of peace of which Ezekiel spoke. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, the apostle says, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring we have peace with God. We're also declaring that we have peace with each other. Now it's interesting that that the apostle says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called to one body and be thankful. 
thankful for what? Be thankful for the peace of Christ. Be thankful that he made peace between you, between us and God. But also, be thankful that he made peace between us, among us. See, a thankful people is a people not easily wanting to disrupt the peace. If you're really thankful for it, if it's really your life, if you're really saying, this is the best thing that's ever happened, I have peace with God and I have peace with people. And so why then would we sin and disrupt that peace with God in any way? Why would we sin against each other to disrupt that peace with each other? Why wouldn't we actively be living out this peace if it's that great, if we're so thankful for it? You see, when we sin against God, it's a sense in which we're saying, no thanks. When we disrupt the peace, there's a sense in which we're saying, no thanks. But when we're saying, oh God, this is great, thank you. We're unlikely to disrupt the peace. Let me ask you to bow with me. Just take a moment, two things to think about and to pray about, just in the quiet of the moment. Number one, first, just by way of confession. To confess times when you've disrupted the peace. It isn't that you were being constructive, but destructive to the peace amongst the people of God. Might have been something in your own thought, and it's just a private matter. It doesn't even include anybody else in that sense. It's just you. Might be something that you've done or said by way of gossip, by way of slander, by way of anger, by way of might be a, something of immorality, covetousness, whatever you'll know. Is there anything there you need to lay out before God and confess before him? Take a moment, just in that time, this time of confession. Now take a moment of consecration, just this time of commitment, dedication, however you would understand to put that. So you've got to realize that you've made peace through Jesus, peace with you, Father, peace with others in the body of Christ. Now enable me to seek that peace, to maintain that peace, to preserve that peace, to pursue that peace, to plan for that peace, to... Love that peace. Cause me to walk as a peaceable person. Let's commit yourself to that before God. Father, we pray that you would forgive us our sins. And we pray that you would cause us by 
your Holy Spirit within us by way of your word working to renew our minds all on the basis of what Christ has done that we would walk in a manner worthy of Christ fully pleasing to him and God we would live as those in whom the peace of Christ rules that would always be on our minds and we might maintain that which Christ died to achieve that would be no small thing to us but something that governs our thoughts and lives we pray that you would Father take this bread and juice and set it aside so as to remind us of Christ so as to enable us to enjoy his presence with us that we may rejoice and be thankful for the peace that we have with him that we may rejoice as we partake together of the peace and be thankful for the peace that we have with each other Lord pray that there is real fellowship around this table and we give you thanks in Jesus name Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. All those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as as the Savior of sinners. And all those who desire to live a life worthy of Christ, pleasing to him, meaning to live at peace with him and peace with one another that's true for you I invite you to come these two sections can come down this aisle to my left these two down the aisle to my right take a piece of bread dip it in the cup as you do just allow it to go off in your head I have peace with God and I have peace with his people please come